That's what worthy mm-hmm. is. I'm worthy enough to keep trying. I'm worthy mm-hmm. enough to put my bike back right, get back on and try to get back down this, you know, block. If you can remember that, that becomes the intersection of strength-proof parenting. As I practice these, as I, as I go do these, I'm worthy enough to be confident in myself. Mm-hmm. I'm worthy enough to be resilient. Welcome to the Unconditionally Worthy Podcast. In this podcast, I will guide you on your journey to connect with the true source of your self-worth. Each week, we'll discuss barriers to unconditional self-worth, the connection between self-worth and relationships, self-worth practices you can apply to your life, and how to use self-worth as a foundation for living courageously. I'm your host, Dr. Adia Gooden, a licensed clinical psychologist, dance enthusiast, and a dark chocolate lover who believes deeply that you are worthy unconditionally. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Unconditionally Worthy podcast, season five. Excited that you all are still listening, still rolling with me and checking out these episodes. And my hope, as always, is that they continue to be helpful and supportive to you. If you are finding the podcast helpful, I would love for you to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps other people to find the podcast and helps me to understand what you're finding helpful about it. So you can do that on the apps and just let us know what you think. Let the world know what you think about this podcast. I know that you're going to find this episode helpful today, especially if you are a parent. And I think there are things that are in this episode that will be helpful to everyone um, because we're talking about shame-proof parenting with Mercedes Samudio. And she's created a framework around shame-proof parenting. And she provides us with some practices and recommendations about how to get shame out of parenting, how to stop shaming ourselves, how to stop shaming our children. And we sort of talk about the inner sections with shame-proof parenting and embracing our unconditional self-worth and how knowing that you're worthy helps you as a parent um, and helps you as a person. And so I think if you are a parent, you're definitely going to want to tune in. And if you're somebody who's been struggling with shame, I also think that this episode is going to be useful for you, even if you're not a parent, because you can apply some of the aspects of the framework that Mercedes shares to your own life. So let's get into the show. I am welcoming Mercedes Zamudio to the podcast today, and she is an AMDR-trained licensed psychotherapist, speaker, and best-selling author who supports parents and children to communicate with each other, manage emotional trauma, navigate social media and technology together, and develop healthy parent-child relationships. As a licensed clinical social worker with a private practice, Mercedes has worked with adoptive families, foster families, teen parents, parents and parents navigating the child protective system, services system, and children living with mental illness. Mercedes seeks to empower parents to believe that they are already great guides for raising healthy and happy children. Mercedes, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Awesome. Well, I'd love for you to start where we start all of the conversations with guests on the podcast, which is by sharing a bit about your own self-worth journey. Wow. So we only have this podcast, right? To talk about that. (laughs) Um, But it has been 
an interesting journey because I think many of us who get into this field do it for that sense of trying to find who are we and, and what what's the meaning of what we've gone through. Um, I specifically began working with parents because of that. I was raised by my step-grandmother because my parents could not care for me. My siblings mm. were raised by other family members. And so that level of family kind of disconnection led me into the field to understand how does this happen? What is this about? Is there repair? Is there healing? And so myself kind of birthed and healing journey has been through my profession, through seeing other families heal, through allowing myself to heal, through allowing myself to heal through different phases of my life, which I don't think we talk about a lot when we heal. It's not a one time, once and done mm-hmm. kind of space. You kind of have to heal through different phases. And so my kind of self-work journey has been that, realizing that when I was younger, starting out, I did not like that idea of it's the journey, not the destination. And now that I've been mm. in this field for so long, watching so many journeys and going on my own, I realized, yes, this journey is really a part of it. And wherever you end is where you end, but it is really about the journey. And so I think that is, that's been my self kind of birth journey. It's just being able to embrace that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's so important. I'm definitely a journey, you know, not just a destination person. And I think part of the reason people struggle with that is because they think that where they are now will be where they're going to be until they make the destination. And you know, and I know after doing therapy with many, many, many clients that there's so much progress along the way. Like just because there's a journey doesn't mean that you're not making progress and things aren't changing as you evolve and go along. And I also appreciated that you highlighted the, the fact that, you know, healing can look differently and be different at different stages of our lives. And I think, you know, especially since you work with families, I'm sure that you think about the fact that we evolve in developmental stages and at one developmental stage, right, we may experience something and feel very like we've healed and processed through something that's different at another developmental stage, right? Like you might process something in your early 20s or as a teenager. And then when you become a parent, right? Like so a whole nother layer of things can come up for you as you, you know, get into that new role. And so I think that's really helpful because sometimes I think people also think, oh, this is coming up again. That means that I didn't do it right the first time or I'm backsliding or whatever versus like, no, there's just like more layers that are being uncovered with this new aspect of your life. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what EMDR really helped me to really understand, even for my own healing. Um, mm. Because definitely you understand that as a therapist, but EMDR really actually takes you through the layers of healing. And so I really appreciated that addition to not just my clinical tool belt, but also to my own healing uh, kind of journey where it really showed what you were just talking about. There are so many different layers that once you maybe, like you said, uncover one thing, you think, okay, good, I'm over that. But now mm-hmm. it's uncovered something else that now you're like, oh, that was covering up this other thing, or that was mm-hmm. stopping me from seeing another aspect of myself. And so I agree with you wholeheartedly that healing is so layered. I love the way you kind of articulated that. It's, it's so many, it's like peeling back those layers. As you learn one thing about yourself, you learn, okay, there's more here. Or I agree with me working with parents. I see that a lot of parents think, yeah, I'm good. I've got everything together. I'm ready to have a kid. And you are right. You were good. Everything was together, but then you had a kid. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. I mean? And so I think you, you forget that as you move through phases, that these phases were challenging in different ways. And that's where the healing comes. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I also think like, that's where life is, right? I think we sort of have this imagination that like, if we just did everything perfectly, life kind of wouldn't touch us, right? Like we wouldn't have ups and downs. We wouldn't have disappointments. We wouldn't have challenges. So like, we could just like be off over there because we're doing everything perfectly and everything's in control and everything, you know, and it's like, that's not life, right? Like the richness of life is the ups and the downs and the, hopefully you're not like on a roller coaster, like constantly, (laughs) hopefully we have some evenness, but life would be boring if there was never anything new to uncover or to explore. And in so many ways, children bring us into the messiness of life, right? Like literally metaphorically, right? Like they the, the emotions, the mess physically, right? Like there's so much that children just sort of like bring out and bring up. And I, I imagine that that sort of gets into sort of like the, the shame proof parenting that you work on, right? Because often there can be a lot of shame around like, it's not perfect. It's not neat. It's not clean. Whether that's your house, whether that's how you're parenting, whether that's how you cope with a tantrum, whether that's how your child is behaving, right? There can be so much discomfort with the mess that can, you know, emerge in our lives with kids. So I wonder, does that relate to the work you do? And kind of how do you think about this whole concept of shame-proof parenting? Yes, 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 and yes, and yes, right, to all of that. And I think that's where our shame stories form, right, Mm. in that perfection as a recovering perfectionist who thought all of those things, who thought, if I do everything right, I'll be able to be, you know, perfect, and no one will be able to talk bad to me, and no one will be able to, you know, critique me. And Mm. I literally live like that for years, right? And the healing journey taught me a lot about how those shame stories get created for us, how we hold on to them. And so shame-proof parenting, in a sense, isn't about never dealing with shame. It's about really helping you and your family realize that as these things come up, as the embarrassments come up, as the hardships come up, that we use the shame-proof parenting framework to reconnect to each other, right? To Mm. not hate each other, to not start pointing the finger, oh, it's you, it's you, you did that. And if it wasn't for you, Right. Mm. We don't do that. We just come in and say, wow, this was hard for us as a family. Right. And so that framework is different than what I've seen. I think a lot of times in the parenting world, we talk a lot about skill building and developmental Mm. milestones. We forget that a lot of people, all of us, come into parenting with shame narratives. Either I'm not going to be like my parent, or I hope I'm just like them, Mm. or I had the best childhood, or I had the worst. We come Mm. in with that, wanting Mm -hmm. to either recreate something that was beautiful for us. And having a hard time when we can't because our kids are different or wanting to make mm-hmm. sure we're nothing like our parents and then having a hard mm-hmm. time when unfortunately, yeah, we do yell or we do punish or we do take away things. And so mm-hmm. it's all of these shame stories that I think goes beautifully with what you said. We think if we're the perfect parent, whatever that looks like, our kids won't aggravate us or make us upset or get hurt or get in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. And so shame parenting is that is going to happen. And so mm-hmm. when it does, let's use these tools to support each other. When so-and-so gets in trouble at school, let's connect with each other. When dad Mm. has a really bad day and yells at everybody, let's connect with each other. Mm -hmm. It's hard. And I often tell parents it's a journey, but that's what you're working through. You're working to when things happen, how do we get back together to connect to each other? Not Mm -hmm. saying we hope things don't happen because then you don't prepare. Right. Or 
if it does happen, it means I'm bad, I'm wrong, I shame myself, or my child is bad and wrong. Like, I know one of the things that's like, I think I talked about this on another podcast, but like, I really dislike people saying, oh, that baby's so good, or that baby's so bad. I'm like, no, no. (laughs) Like, the baby is worthy. The baby is, you know, innately good, but that's not based on their behavior conforming to what you want their behavior to be and making your life easier and comfortable because that's what it really is. It's like, this baby makes my life easy. So they're good. This baby makes my life harder. So they're bad. And it's like, like we start very early with the labeling of babies and children based on their behavior as they learn the world and their bodies and all of those things. Yeah. And I think that can be really tied to so many cultural things. It's one of the reasons why a lot of the work that I'm doing, my doctoral program focuses on a specific culture because every culture has ideas about child raising, ideas about how a child should be raised, Mm. ideas about even how to stop a baby from crying. Right. And Mm. we know this because we live in families where someone say, pick that baby up or don't hold that baby too long. It's going to do this. Mm. Don't breastfeed them too long or don't give them a bottle too soon. I Mm. need to put a little brandy in it. He'll go to bed. Right. These are all, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, child rearing practices that Mm -hmm. we grew up with. Right. And if you don't know it didn't work or if you're not cognizant of how it influenced you, you might take some of that into it, including the labeling of behaviors. Mm -hmm. Right. I definitely lived in a family where I was the good kid because I went to school. Mm -hmm. I did what I was supposed to do. I didn't cause any trouble. Whereas some of my cousins were the bad kids. You don't want to be like cousin so-and-so because he don't listen to his mom. And, you know, and so I grew up with that now in my Mm -hmm. 30s. Right. I wonder, do I label myself and other people that way? And that's a mm. lot. And so when I think about my parents on this, I teach them about that. I teach them these are shame stories and narratives you learn, right? Good versus bad, right versus wrong. They're not inherently bad mm-hmm. concepts. It's just how are you applying them and how are you using them to navigate? Right. And that's really what shame proof parenting is. It's exactly what you've been saying. We're not saying you're right or wrong for this. It's just can you take a step back and say, is this how I want to talk to my child right now? Mm-hmm. Right? Is this mm-hmm. the, do I want to start these labels? Do I want to do this? If yes, then that becomes your decision and, and the things that have to go with that later. But if no, that also becomes your decision. It just is hard. Yeah. And, I, and I'll share that. It's a lot harder to go against what your culture says a child should be doing or what your family says you mm-hmm. should be doing. So those families also come up against that. Even if I decide, to do a different type of parenting, I'm also coming up against my parents or my community, right? Or my culture who I need mm-hmm. them to help, but I don't mm-hmm. want them to recreate things mm-hmm. that happen. And so I say all that to say there's so many layers that shame-proof parenting is that. It's not about, I cannot predict how my mom is going to talk to me. I cannot predict how the person at the grocery store is going to look at me, but I can come back home and say, that was hard. We had a tantrum mm-hmm. target and I, and I wanted to hate myself and I wanted to be mad at my kid, but what else? But I want to do something different. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I really try to teach with shame-proof parenting, that it's not, you won't have a tantrum and target and you won't yell and you won't do it wrong. It's when we get home and we're safe. And that's, and I'll leave that as other, all other things being equal if you're at home. Mm-hmm. And you're safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have that moment to read, to reflect and say, hmm, I didn't like how that target store went and I didn't like how I yelled and I didn't like how, you know, we did this. I'd like to try different. That shape mm-hmm. of parenting. Yeah. 
Well, it sounds really powerful. And I'm sort of also thinking, because I know you do a lot of work with African-American families about, you know, the context and the legacy of some of the um, parenting practices. And, you know, it's like, if you are raising, if you're enslaved and your children are enslaved, then their behavior is life or death. If you're living in a community where, you know, police are doing whatever they want, basically, and one wrong move means you might be thrown in jail, you might be killed, it's life or death, right? And so, you know, how does that then create a situation where it's like, you better stay in line? And I'm going to have a very harsh reaction if you don't stay in line, because I'm terrified that if you don't stay in line with me, it, next time it might be a police officer and that might be the last time I see you, right? Like, and it's just like, can we even, like, can we have compassion for ourselves, for our parents, our caregivers around like where it came from? Because it didn't just come from a crazy place where it's like, you just don't, you know, you just want to be on people's butts and whatever. It's like, it came from a place of like, survival and protection and safety. And I'm terrified that if you're your full childlike, joyful, rambunctious self in public, that will cause you harm. It will keep us from right, like accessing certain things. And so that then comes through as, you know, I'm going to be very hard on you. And I think the power of you know, it sounds like shame-proof parenting and doing this work with families is, okay, can we acknowledge that? And then can we intentionally choose how we work with some of these challenges? Okay, so it is really important for your Black son to know that he can't engage in certain behaviors safely outside of the home. And that's the reality. Can we communicate that in a way that doesn't induce shame and that doesn't, isn't hypercritical, that is like, is there a way to work with that versus like, you just need to be kind, or you just like, there's something wrong with the, the way you're parenting. So it seems like this is a really powerful tool to be intentional, culturally sensitive, kind of all of those things. Yes. I was about to get on the organ because you were taking us home on the preaching of it <laughs> because I was like, yes, yes. And it's that, it's that idea that a lot of the world can be really overwhelming for different types of people, African-American families, LGBTQIA families. Just, I, I mean, I, we could spend the rest of the, the podcast talking about all the identities that get marginalized and still have to parent mm-hmm. and still have to mm-hmm. raise children, you know? And so when I, when I focus a lot of my work on this, it's because of the work that I saw in community mental health where in community mental health, it is usually marginalized communities who are accessing these services, predominantly African-American and Latina families. And it's really interesting watching people, service providers say things like, oh, well, they have a nice car. Why can't they buy formula? Or, oh, this mom thinks this, but that. And, Mm. oh, I saw this mom do that. And I don't know why parents Mm. do that. And just hearing all those Mm. stories and then going into the homes and knowing that these parents are living with not just the shame of the world, but now there are social workers and workers coming Mm. in also watching their home. That Mm. is why I created shame-proof parenting and a lot of the work I did, because what is what you just said? Is there a way for us to be service providers in these homes where there's a lot of cultural and systemic things going on 
that sometimes we can address. And sometimes it's just, let's give them a resource and let's support them as we move forward in, in progression, right? That can we do that with compassion? Can we do that without creating more shame narratives? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one time, this is really early on in my work at getting hours, learning how to do therapy, mm-hmm. learning how to be here. I was in a home doing home visits. And as I was sitting there doing the home visit, talking, you know, discussing, getting paperwork, a roach fell out of off the ceiling into my lap. Mm. And I watched the mom just, she felt so embarrassed. She just kind of stopped and she mm. went like that. And I dusted it off and I said, all right, I've seen the roach before. Let's keep going. And we kept going. We mm. finished. Over the next couple of sessions, she said, thank you for not making me feel bad. It's not my fault. It's the neighbors. I try my best to keep things clean. And I knew that. I had been working with her. Her home is, is mm-hmm. clean. Like, I know that. And it's not about cleanliness or not, but just thinking about how service providers sometimes have a hard time being in spaces where no matter how hard your client works, they have to deal with the environment they live in. Mm-hmm. And so I say that story and I share that because a lot of the work we do can uh, sometimes in unintentionally create more shame stories for families, which means then they don't access services, which means mm-hmm. that they get into further disrepair because they're not getting the services they need. And so mm. the work that I'm doing, the work around shameproof parenting, even though it's totally accessible to anyone who wants it, a lot of the work that I train clinicians on is how to do this without creating more shame stories for families, mm. how to be in a home, do a therapy session and see all of the stuff going on there and know how to navigate some of that. That does mm-hmm. take skill, and that's something that I think will come over time. But I just remember being a new social worker, thinking we need more skills around this, and how do we manage this, and how do we manage people who maybe haven't seen these types of environments who do want to help. I don't think most mm-hmm. people who come into this field are thinking, I can't wait to judge people. But if you've never seen it, right. you don't understand the cultural you know, significance of some of it. You don't even understand the systemic ways that certain towns or certain parts of town got that way you can definitely start judging without knowing, even though you're there mm-hmm. to help. And so I think that's something that as I think about shame-proof parenting, it's not just for the families. It also becomes about how do we as a community not recreate shame stories for families mm-hmm. who have to live in environments and systems that they have to live in and adapt yeah. to. They can't change always. And so, yeah, I think there is a lot to be done with this. But the idea initially of shame-proof parenting was because of all that that I saw in, in my work noticing that it's really hard to parent when there's a lot of shame. And then Mm. you do, you tell your kid, sit still because you think it's their behavior that will help. Or you you grab Mm -hmm. them too rough because if they mess up, someone will shame you. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so it becomes this very interesting push-pull that I think a lot of families are in to not hurt their child, but then people judge them so harshly that you end up doing it to make your kid do well so no one says anything bad about you and so Mm -hmm. again it's a self-fulfilling cycle i think that you've probably seen for sure and i think a lot of us see when we do this work yeah now jump off my soapbox as a social worker no this is this great (laughs) and i'd love for you to share a little bit more about why shame doesn't work right like we are sort of in a space societally where we think that shaming people is going to change their behavior, right? Like we see this sort of politically, right? There's this sort of like shame, right? Like, you know, shouting shame at somebody, shame, shame, shame. And it's like, there's a sense that I think there's a sort of collective belief that you can shame people into changing their behavior. I think you see it with parents, right? Like, how could she, how would she, how, you know what I mean? Like there was, um, 
somebody said, my, my mother-in-law sent in a, a story about a mom whose child passed away when she left the child in the car, in a hot car. And she was so caught up in planning for a party and all this stuff. And she accidentally left the child in a car and the child passed away, right? Like just awful heartbreaking. And somebody on the thread responded and said, that mother should be in jail. And my, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, like that mother has suffered. Like we know that that mom is beating herself. Like we'll probably never forgive herself. Right. But then the, the sense is you should be shamed. You should be thrown away. You should be thrown in jail. You should. And I don't, you know, I don't think that's unique to the person who said that. Right. Like I think it's, it's a, you know, I think it's a common thing. Right. Like how could they? They're awful. So share a little bit about why shaming people, shaming children, shaming parents, shaming people in general, isn't an effective strategy to bring about change. Yes. And that's a great way to say it. It is not an effective strategy to bring about change at all. And so I'll say it this way. I think one thing that we often get kind of convoluted or conflated is shame and judgment, right? I think we judge automatically. It's part of how we live. Right. I have to know what's a threat, what's not, what's safe, what's not, if this good is that we're judging constantly. Shame comes from us deciding that that judgment is the right judgment. I've decided mm-hmm. that wearing red shirts makes people look a certain way. So every time I see somebody wearing a red shirt, I decide they need to be told that red jacket doesn't look good on you because I think this. That's where shame starts. Not that I don't like red or red jackets. It comes from when now I've decided that that's how it's going to be and that's how it should be. When we decide that about something as universal as parenting, it becomes really convoluted because everyone does it. That's how you and I are sitting here. Someone had to parent us, right? And so everyone does it, but no one really knows what they're doing. And I Mm -hmm. think the shame around parenting is people trying to make sense of how difficult this is, right? If you think first, you'll never leave a kid in the, the car. If you raise them right, you'll never see a kid who does anything wrong. If you pop them when they're young, they definitely will grow up to be good. It's like, so these are mm. all things that people just think are true, mm-hmm. right? And they say it to it. See, if you had a pop them, he would have listened. See, if you had a done what I mm. said. When you hear those things, that means this person thinks it's true. Whether it mm-hmm. is or not becomes part of your work and your narrative. The reason why that doesn't create change is because when I tell you what I know to be true about me, that means that you have had to live my life, done my life experiences, done everything that I've done to be able to see the truth the way I see it. Mm -hmm. And since that can't happen, it becomes really about how do I sit with someone else's truth that rubs up against mine? Mm. If we can't, we create shame. Your truth is wrong. It can't be that Mm -hmm. way. Let me prove to you. Then mm-hmm. we start creating shame stories. This happens to us when we're kids. You tell your parent this doesn't feel good. They say, well, you don't know what this is. You better mm-hmm. sit here and do it. Now I've mm-hmm. started to distrust that things that don't feel good to me can't be trusted. I can't trust that. No one does this on purpose. It just happens over time. And so it doesn't change people because you no longer trust what your truth is. You only trust what someone else says. Mm-hmm. And so I share this with us for this foundational understanding of shame is because shame ends up happening. It's why I created shame-proof parenting. Not because you can stop it. You cannot stop people from judging you. You can't even stop yourself from judging how you're doing it because you're measuring up to how other people are doing it. 
What you can do, though, is come back to yourself and your family and say, how has this started to affect us? How Mm -hmm. has it affected us that the teacher keeps calling us or that my mom keeps telling me I'm wrong or that every time we go to Target, I can't get through a a Target, you know, run without someone having a tantrum. How is this affecting us? Mm -hmm. That's how shame stories get created. Renee Brown is really good with shame to understand what that is, but she has a really good way of explaining it that I love. And I talk about it in this way. The most vulnerable parts of us that people don't know, that people don't understand, they really do need to be held and validated in safe spaces. Mm-hmm. They really do. If they're not, they will create shame stories. So if I share some of my most vulnerable things right now on this podcast, I have no idea how you're going to edit it. I have no idea how people are going to do it. Mm. It's going to create some type of story for myself, right? When I, when I see that, it's why it's important for us to shame proof our families. Everyone mm-hmm. needs a safe space to come back and say, is that experience true? Is that right about me? Mm-hmm. I'll end this by giving a really good example of what this looks like. I was working with a family doing that, right? Working with the Shame Proof Framework, helping the parent who had just gotten uh, the diagnosis of ADHD with her child. And they were both trying to figure out how to navigate that and what that was. Some shame stories have been created around kids who couldn't do their homework and kids who couldn't sit still and things like mm-hmm. that, only to find out that this kid has ADHD and that's been mm-hmm. most of his struggle. So Mm -hmm. as we began to work through the shame proof of it, the mom told me in one session that for the first time, the son actually came and said, I can't do my homework. I don't want to do it. And I'd like some support around that. It's Mm -hmm. something that we had created where he, Mm -hmm. when he couldn't do it, instead of fighting or tearing it up or just not doing it to ask and say, right? When the mom told me that, I said, how did you feel? And she said, I was so mad at him because he didn't take his medication and this and that and that and that and that. And I said, what did you say? What I said was, okay, let's talk about it later. He put his homework Mm -hmm. down. We talked about it later. The reason why I share that is because I'm not trying to get parents to the point where they love that their kids don't do what they're supposed to do. (laughs) I'm getting you to the point where you understand it's okay for you to be disappointed that he didn't take his medication. And that's probably what happened. And that's why he can't do it now. But you also saw that because of that trajectory of things, he doesn't want to do his homework now. Forcing him to do it probably isn't going to work. So she Mm -hmm. just said, we'll talk about it later. That's a shame-proof moment. It's not, I'm mm-hmm. happy that you didn't do that work. It's okay. Everything's fine. We'll love each other. It's not that. It's, there's a lot going on here. I'm angry with you for not doing what you're supposed to do. You're overwhelmed because you didn't do that. Let's talk about it later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, let's talk about mm-hmm. it. And obviously, no mm-hmm. one can talk about the whole work right now. That is what I work to get parents to. Not mm-hmm. that space of, it's okay that when my kid is doing things, I love it, being embarrassed at Target. You don't have to love it. You can be overwhelmed. But realize that when we're in those moments, we create shame stories for ourselves and our child about how bad we are, how bad they are, and we're overwhelmed. If we can move mm-hmm. out of that overwhelm, whatever that looks like, then we can go back to, huh, that w- I did try to go to Target the day before Thanksgiving, and that's probably what happened. Yeah, it is probably mm-hmm. what happened, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you think about it that way, it allows your family to get shame proof. Not that nothing happens, not that you don't get annoyed and frustrated that someone didn't do right. You just get a chance to say, let's try to figure out what all the circumstances were so we can do better next time, or we can be more graceful. Maybe there's no way to do better mm-hmm. next time. Maybe it's just, let's have grace. There's no way to deal with grandma coming over. It's going to be chaotic. Let's just be nice to each other. <laughs> let's just decide mm-hmm. we're going to be nice to grandma coming over. And I use all these examples because I think what we see in the parenting world sometimes is just be a good parent. Just be nice to your kids. Mm-hmm. Don't yell. 
Yes, that's if you, all other things being equal, if those things can happen, good. If you can get to a place where you don't yell and you can manage that, that's beautiful. Just most of us, especially if you look at the last couple of years of COVID, that's hard. Mm-hmm. Even under the best circumstances, COVID kicked a lot of people in their butt, even under the best circumstances. Mm-hmm. And so shame becomes even when things knock us down that we can't predict, how do we get back together? Even mm-hmm. when things knock us down that we should have prepared for. How can we get back together? Mm-hmm. Even if things knock us down that someone said it's going to knock you down if you don't look at it, how do we come back together? Right? Mm-hmm. How do we still love each other even through the things that are hard and do kind of kick us a little bit? Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like a big piece is sort of helping people to separate the experience or the behaviors mm-hmm. from who they are as people. And I think yeah. that's a big aspect of shame instead of, and I think Brene Brown talks about this distinction too. Like guilt is like, I, I don't feel good about my behavior and shame is I feel I'm a bad person yeah. because of this. Right. And yeah. when we yes. feel like we're just a bad person, that's a conclusion. It often feels like we can't grow or change when it's like, okay, I made this decision under these circumstances and that didn't work out then there's more agency and more choice. And it feels easier to think about, well, what do I want to do differently next time versus I'm just a bad parent? Or how can I help my son the next time instead of he's just a bad kid? There's sort of movement there. And you're mentioning your shame-proof framework. And I'd love for you to just kind of break it down for us, right? So what are the specific elements or aspects of this framework that you've created? Yeah, yeah. I realized that too. I was like, I keep talking about it as if everyone has the framework and (laughs) we all got it. But it's six tenets that allow us to just get back to that that connection. And so what I teach parents is you start to embody these two, not just I'm externally wanting my family to. And so the first one is empathy, right? When we have empathy for ourselves, it opens up a space to see that maybe all of us are doing the best we can in this moment with these tools, right? Including yourself as the parent, like what you just said, maybe the decisions and the tools I had for that decision were different. So if I have empathy for myself, I can acknowledge that, huh, I did not like that, but I'm still a good person. I can make a different decision. The next is awareness. Being aware. What are, what's going on? What was happening, right? Like what I said with that one example, the parent knew that he hadn't taken his medication, so there was that awareness, but then also having empathy for the fact that that's probably why you're at this place where you don't want to do your work right now and you're overwhelmed by it, right? That's empathy, right? That's empathy for your part, your son and then for yourself that, hey, I'm also mm-hmm. overwhelmed, let's not, right? Knowing needs is the third one. Sometimes, a lot of our conflict, and if I can be honest, I would say probably all of our conflict comes from everyone trying to get their needs met and just not knowing how to, right? Mm. And sometimes we don't even know what that need is. I might need to sleep, which is why I'm being so irritable. I might need to feel connected. I've definitely had parents tell me at the end of the day, my kids are more irritable with me because I haven't spent any time with them. And so mm. I've had to learn that that's their need. Their need is I don't want to go to bed because you've been gone all day. I want to have some mm. time with you. That's knowing people's needs, right? It's not mm-hmm. my kid wants a story. They just want time, right? Mm-hmm. What about yourself, right? What are your needs? I have a need to belong. I definitely work with parents who say, I just have a need to be around other adults. Yes, that's mm-hmm. a need. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. a real need to get met, right? And so when we know our needs, we, even if we can't get them met immediately, it allows us to say, wow, I do need some adult time. So maybe over the next week, I need to see if I can get some. So maybe it's not today. 
But I do know over the next couple of weeks, I need to try to see if I can get some adult time. That mm-hmm. helps you to kind of have more empathy. It helps you to bring more awareness to yourself. The next one is one of my favorites. It's confidence. Mm. Having confidence in what you do well allows you the space to know, okay, then I need help with these other things, right? Mm. So I said it once in a, in, a, in a session with parents, a group session. One parent said, that's true. I'm not a tech person. Anytime I have a tech issue, I ask my husband and they come in and fix the computer and it's over. And I'm like, that's confidence. You know what you're good at. If your husband can just come in and get it fixed, you can do the rest of your, whatever you're doing. That's confidence, mm-hmm. right? I know what I do well. I just need help with this. Or I know mm-hmm. what I'm not good at. Someone else needs to completely take the reins on that. Oftentimes I find that parents feel they have to do everything in order to be a good parent instead of mm-hmm. realizing things you do well, focus on that. These gaps, let the, your partner or your support team or someone else fill in mm-hmm. those gaps for yourself. So mm-hmm. you can stay present doing the things you do well. If you're like good at bedtime, do bedtime. But maybe you're not good at mornings. Figure out how to do better mornings for yourself, especially mm-hmm. if you don't have help. Pay attention to mm-hmm. those things. But that's the confidence piece, right? If I know what I do well in and I feel good about that, I don't mind lessening the hold on certain things to let other people do it. And I actually spend a lot of time on confidence because that actually becomes some of the crux of the rest of it. Mm-hmm. The next is resilience, right? Resilience isn't simply bouncing back. It's about doing it together, helping each other mm-hmm. build that resiliency together. Right. So it's not just I'm good at bouncing back. Well, if everyone in your family is having a hard time, then they're not going to be there with you. And so what, how did you learn? What are resilient? What are your resilience tools? And don't be scared to listen to other people's. Right. I had one kid say once, I just zone out sometimes and play video games. That's actually a pretty good thing to do sometimes. Right. It's Mm -hmm. okay to go do something mindless. Right. And so Mm -hmm, for that family, mindlessness is a good resilience tool for them. If everyone just has an hour to do nothing, they can come back. For this family, it worked, right? And so resilience becomes what helps us get back? What yeah. helps us know where I'm at my limit and I need to replenish? What helps me know, okay, I'm, I need to come back? What does that resilience look like for us? And then the last tenet is support, right? Support not just on what we know to be true, right? Obviously, I need people to take care of the kids and do these things for me. But what type of support do you need elsewhere? Do you need marital support? How is your partnership going? Do you need career support? I've definitely seen a lot of families when they become parents, their career kind of goes to the wayside, right? Mm. And it's, I have a different focus, but you'll find this need. I need to be back in my career. I need to know what's moving, right? That's a need. That's something that's a part mm-hmm. of your support. So how do you do that? How do you keep up with your career while still managing this? How do you even build new support? Maybe your old friends don't understand now because you're a parent. How do you build mm-hmm. new support, Right. All of that matters as you're building your support because some people do well for you, right? Sometimes I do need my single girlfriends because they don't care and it's nice just to hang out with them. But sometimes I need my parents of toddlers because they really understand how this is. Mm -hmm. That's okay to have both sets of support, right? Sometimes you do need your mother-in-law, but be honest about what she does well. So that way you can tell her you do great when you do this. If you could just do groceries for us, that would be really helpful, right? Okay. Right. And so I say all that to say, as you know, what's best of support for you, you actually get your real needs met. You're not just having people mm-hmm. come to the house and take up space. You're actually mm-hmm. getting your needs met, right? Because you know, I do best with this or my family does best with this type of support. I'll, I'll end this by saying all of these six tenants are things that are constantly being worked on. That's why it's a framework. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I've mastered empathy. I've met, mm-hmm. probably won't. But if you remember, 
giving yourself empathy helps, that brings you back. If you remember mm-hmm. what was going on when we had that fight, uh, yeah, his mom was coming into town and yes, okay, right? Mm-hmm. That awareness brings you back, right? I'm actually really good at putting the kids to bed, but I'm not good at, at craft time. That actually helps you to realize, all right, I'm a good bed person. I need someone who does craft time. I'd hate crafts, right? And I use these facetious examples to help people realize that the tenants aren't steps. They are really things to remind yourself of how to get back, how not to create a mm-hmm. shame to for yourself of how bad of a parent you are, how horrible you've done, but to remind yourself, right, we're learning or right, this is going on. Mm-hmm. This is my fault. I've literally yeah. told every parent during the past two years, whatever you remind yourself of, remember it's COVID and we've been pretty much an apocalypse for two years. So that goes over every other thing that you're about to tell yourself of how bad you mm-hmm. are. <laughs> First mm-hmm. COVID, then go with whatever comes next because mm-hmm. obviously everybody's under a different level of stress with this thing going on above us, right? And so it was a really good time to to talk about shame-proof parenting during this time because it's easy to create shame stories when everybody's mm-hmm. sitting in the house together trying to navigate work from home, school mm-hmm. from home, and we still have to live here, right. <laughs> you know? And so right. I, I think that was a really good time to really pay attention to how we create those shame stories under a circumstance none of us had any control over. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Thank you for sharing those. I mean, it sounds, it sort of reminds me of kind of how I think about the self-worth journey, which is using practices, right? So those, the things that you're sharing, the empathy, the support, the confidence, right? All of those things feel like, like they're things that you sort of return to again and again. They're things that guide behavior. They could be practices or values or things that sort of people come back to again and again so that they're not thinking, okay, yeah, right. I, I've mastered this and I'm done with that. Or I gave my child or myself empathy once and now that's it. I've done enough empathy. It's like, well, no, we know that that needs to be an ongoing thing. Um, so thank you for breaking that, that down. You know, I'd love to also talk a little bit um, as we sort of close out here about how you think self-worth can sort of um, intersect with parenting and, you know, what you, how you think sort of if parents sort of know that they're worthy unconditionally, how that might support them in sort of being effective parents and being the parents they want to be in engaging in this shame-proof parenting process. What do you think the sort of interactions are there? Yeah, I think that actually drives really well with the shame-proof parenting space of it being this practice, this journey that you take yourself on to build up some of that worth. I often tell parents, and as I develop kind of that parental identity development model kind of space, you are diving into another piece of your identity that you actually have Mm. to cultivate, right? And so worth is something that as we move into different identities, as we move into different roles, we have to cultivate it in that space. And so in the intersection there, shame-proof parenting allows you a really nice foundation of tenets to begin to cultivate that, that idea of worthiness as a parent. As you have more empathy for yourself, you realize, right, I'm learning, right? I do this with new parents quite a bit. You have to realize you just became a parent two days ago, two weeks ago, three months ago, right? And so you're learning Mm -hmm. a lot about how to exist with another person's needs, Mm -hmm. right? And so that allows cultivation of worth. As you get older, one of the things that I also realized with kids is trying to teach them worthiness and their worth gives you another opportunity for yourself as well, Mm -hmm. right? So you watch your child struggle with trying to ride a bike and I'm stupid, 
You have to remind mm. your kid they're not dumb for falling off their bike the first time they try it. That's a good reminder for you. You're not mm-hmm. dumb the first time you try something. If you fall off your bike metaphorically, get back up and remind yourself you're a good kid and you're, you can do this, right? So it kind of mm-hmm. becomes another opportunity for parents to remind themselves of the narrative they've had. You're not going to tell your kid, what a bad kid you are, you fell off your bike. Most of us aren't going to do that. We're going to be empathetic. We're going to show them support. We're going to give them a kind word so they can feel encouraged to keep trying. That's right. another moment of finding your worth. That's what worth mm-hmm. is. I'm worthy enough to keep trying. I'm worthy mm-hmm. enough to put my bike back right, get back on and try to get back down this you know, block. If you can remember that, that becomes the intersection of strength-proof parenting. As I practice these, as I, as I go do these, I'm worthy enough to be confident in myself. Mm-hmm. I'm worthy enough to be resilient. I'm worthy enough to remember that it's three o'clock and I haven't eaten yet, (laughs) right? Like Mm -hmm. those things all become part of the parenting journey because you do have to recreate yourself as you take care of the needs of someone else, right? As you try to help this other person live, you are recreating a new sense of your own worth and a new sense of your own identity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really, really helpful because I do get questions from parents who say, you know, I've struggled with self-worth. Like, how do I make sure my child does not go through that? How do I make sure that they feel worthy from the start? And I think, you know, part of what you're saying is like how you respond to your child, how you encourage your child helps to instill a sense of worthiness, right? You're again, separating, you know, sort of like what happens in life from their worth and, you know, making sure they know that, it's not about perfection. It's not about, you know what I mean? It's not about never failing or never making mistakes, that that's part of it. And that doesn't take away from their yeah. worthiness. But then there's this other piece, which is, you know, when you can treat yourself as worthy, which is a lot of what I talk about as well, then you're, you're one better equipped to show up with compassion and empathy for your children and two, you're modeling, right? Because we all know that if you as a parent aren't affirming your child for being worthy, even when they make mistakes or whatever, and you're reminding them of that, but then you make a mistake, right? You, you know, miss a pickup time and you're late or you spill food on the floor or, you know, whatever it is, like you make a mistake, you yell at your kid, right? And then you start beating yourself up. What you're modeling is, I do not think I'm worthy of love, care, and respect because I made this mistake. And our kids are going to hold on to what we do more than what we say, right? They may hear, yeah, yeah, yeah. You say all it's all good if you don't make a mistake, but I see you beating yourself up for that mistake you made. So that's what's true, right? And so it's like, if we really want our kids to know they are worthy, We need to work on affirming for ourselves that we are worthy just as we affirm them as well. Yes. And I love that piece of modeling because that's piece that part of the shame proof parenting framework too, that obviously as you're doing this, you kids will see it. And I think that's something that we often miss with, with our parenting. I, parents will see them do something negative and say, I don't know where they learned that, but when they do something positive, you don't pay attention to that either. Mm. And so I think it's really important to pay attention to just both, right? If your kid's not doing something that you like, pay attention to that because that means they are learning something. It might not be from you, but they're learning. But if they can learn from watching, that means they can learn from watching, right? Mm -hmm. Show up, right? And I'll say this even, as I really appreciate what you just shared, I'll kind of share my own space of it, which is 
make a mistake too, right? I often tell parents it's okay to make a mistake in front of your kid and say that, wow, I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't like the way I said that. Say that even as you give apologies, you can say, I didn't like the way I said that, but I Mm -hmm. do want you to know I want your room clean. So I'm sorry I said it that way, but I definitely, that's modeling too. Right. So mm-hmm. it's not just always getting it right. It's not just always liking yourself. Sometimes even say, you know, today I had a really hard time. You know, I, I messed up on a presentation and I didn't like the way I said that. And uh, because then your kids get to also see that it's okay sometimes to feel like, oh, I messed up or, oh, I didn't like mm-hmm. that. It's okay. Talk about it. Because then you'd be surprised as your kids get older, they might even have something to say to you. They might even say, well, it's okay, mom. My teacher taught me when you give a presentation, you do this. Mm. There you go. That's a shame-proof family right there. Not only am I giving myself empathy by being open, my kid now is able to give, it, give me some confidence by saying, well, mm-hmm. my teacher taught me to do it this way if you're giving a presentation. Of course, they're like six or seven, but that might work. <laughs> that six or seven mm-hmm. presentation tip might work. And I joke with that because I think oftentimes as parents, we feel like I can't be human. I have to always have a lesson or I have to always model or I have to just know that at you live, they see you sleep too. They see, mm-hmm. you, they see you go outside and pick the weeds out of the, you know, they see you take the trash cans out. You're not always teaching and modeling and doing exactly the, the, you know, Saturday morning cartoon of it. <laughs> you know, you're not all, mm-hmm. sometimes your kids are just watching you. They're watching the way you watch TV. They're watching the TV shows you pay attention to. It's okay to be human. It's okay to show up. And I think that piece of it is where you find your worth, is that all of you gets to be here, not just the parts of you that you've worked on, not just the parts of you that you've gone to therapy to talk about, mm-hmm. even the parts of you that, yeah, you're still discovering and you don't love so much and you're not, you're not familiar with that part of you. I think that becomes a huge part of worth that as we raise kids, you start to see it. You see them not like themselves as a result of something and you have to really realize, oh, that's a thing. That's a human thing. That's not something we can get out of ourselves. We do feel mm-hmm. bad sometimes. We do mm-hmm. have hard times. And so how do we show that too? So that way mm-hmm. we, we can give our kids the sense of your whole self is okay. Right. Even when you have a hard time. I think that's a part of being that work too. And I only say that because I think that's something as a recovering perfectionist, I had to learn that people do like when you do things right, but people also like you when you don't do things right. People mm-hmm. also like you. Right. And so that worth of it, I think, is really important as you talk about it in that way. I think it's important for us to continue, like you said, to pay attention to how we're showing up, because that also shows us our worth, too. You're showing up, mm-hmm. you're trying. That's a part of your worthiness, too. Yeah. Yeah, I completely, completely agree. And I think that's a great note to to end our conversation on. So. I, I'm sure people are going to be curious about your book and where they can find it. So I'd love for you to share that. And if there are other places where people can connect with you. Yeah. So the best way to connect with me is to start on shameproofparenting.com. That's the name of the book. That's the name of the website. If you start there, you'll get links to you know my YouTube, all my socials, and you can get a link to get the book as well if you're looking forward to that. Thank you so much, Mercedes. It's been really wonderful to have you. And I know that the wisdom you share is going to be so helpful to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining me this week on the Unconditionally Worthy podcast. Make sure to visit my website, dradiagoodin.com and subscribe to the show on iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. You can also follow me on social media at Dr. Adia Gooden. 
If you love the show, please leave a review on iTunes so we can continue to bring you amazing episodes. Lastly, if you found this episode helpful and know someone who might benefit from hearing it, please share it. Thanks for listening and see you next episode. This episode was produced by Chris and Tiana and the music is by Wadaboy. 